Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Not many days to go now to my big Christmas special on Times Radio. If you want me to say hello to you on the radio on Christmas Day, or indeed say hello to your loved ones rather than just you, uh, you can email me, matt at times.radio, matt at times.radio, with your Christmas messages. And maybe I'll be able to say hello to you on Christmas Day, 10 to 1 on Times Radio. Right, coming up on today's episode, then, is the last Times Radio focus group of the year. Are voters really flocking to Keir Starmer or are they still willing to give the Tories the benefit of the doubt? James Johnson in the hot seat for that. Before that, though, it's time for this. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yeah, it's that time in the morning where we speak to two of our favourite columnists. And on a Thursday, it is, of course, Night of the Barrier. But, wait, there's no night. She's already bunked off. It's a silent night. <laughs> <laughs> Did you just snort? I did. Why do you keep snorting? You I'm going to stop snorting on live James radio. James Murray just snorted on live radio. No more, no more, my, no more snorting. It's my New Year's resolution. So James Murray is here. Morning, James. <laughs> Good morning. And uh, joining us and laughing but not snorting is Manvi Rana from Stories of Our Times. Morning, Manvi. Hello. You've both got your Christmas knitwear on. It's just really cold. It is. That's the weather for This isn't Christmas knitwear. This is, this is sensible. Terminal slash winter. Am I allowed to say what I said when you came in this morning? Yes, you can say it. Uh, James walked to the studio and said, why have you come dressed as Richard Byers from uh, The Good Life? (laughs) This is my smart work jumper. (laughs) It was the jeans of the... Anyway, fine. Oh, no. Uh, I'm really depressed now. (laughs) Don't be depressed. Christmas is just around the corner. Uh, How much would you pay to listen to Boris Johnson, James Marriott? A million pounds he's earned. I wouldn't pay a million pounds. Since September. I would pay more to listen to Boris Johnson than some previous prime ministers, uh, more than for Gordon Brown, more than for Theresa May. Um, yeah, it's... So ext- hang on, this is it. You've, you've worked out... So who's top of your league table? Uh, Probably Boris Johnson. Probably Boris Johnson. Uh, I mean, in terms of, like, not being bored, which is what I would expect to be... I mean, that's I the thing. I suppose if, if we're talking, like, after-dinner speech, he'd be funny. Yeah. If you want a speech tackling the, the Globe's threats and problems... Then he wouldn't be any good at all. Be any good but yeah, I kind of, you imagine yourself, you know, you're like, I don't know, who are these people? You know, this kind of corporate event, you've been invited along, you've got to sit through these boring speeches. And if it's this kind of buffoon, it will at least be entertaining. Right, Manvi, you don't agree. No, well, I just think he's, <laughs> I think he's a little overexposed. I think we've heard quite a lot from him recently, so there's no no great surprises. And also, you know, I just think if if you paid any amount of money and got the man who gave that speech about Peppa Pigland. Um, <laughs> I, I think you might think, like, you, you, I think you'd probably assume you'd wasted an awful lot of money. I'm, I'm not sure he's a riveting speaker. He always sort of sounds unprepared, which can be charming at times, and at others can just give you the most surreal rant, and I'm not sure anyone wants to pay for that. I can't remember who's it. Is it Jeremy Vine who said... Did- he was oh, yeah, a thing. It's a great where, story. 
where Boris Johnson turned up late, said, oh, what is this again? Oh, wrote down some notes and, oh, and got up and did this sort of off the, you know, apparently totally unprepared speech, which brought the house down. And then a few I've, weeks I've later... I've seen this in action. Jeremy Vine was at another event where he did exactly the same routine, turned up late, said, oh, what's this again? Scribbled some notes. But then basically just delivered exactly the same speech. But you've, I've, you've seen it in action, have you? I've, I've seen it. So he, he turned, when I was at university, he came along and we were all utterly charmed by it because you know, he was so shambolic and he looked like he hadn't prepared. Uh, he was going to sit down and write his notes on the back of a, a piece of paper two minutes before he was due on. And, and your part of me was thinking, you've had quite a long train ride to get here. <laughs> you know, at what point did you not think of maybe planning this earlier? Um, but he did exactly, exactly that. And then you hear the jokes that you've kind of heard a few times before and you think, well... Um, I'm not sure how completely unprepared this was. No, that is the slight problem with him. Is he's got the he's got the problem that stand-ups have that once you do a TV special, all those gags go in the bin. So, but <laughs> he, he just doesn't think that's the case. He thinks it's fine to keep doing the same gags on the telly that everyone's seen in her before, and they're evidently paying for it. I mean, what's really galling is it must be in terms of like effort to income. This must be yeah, one of the yeah. best ratios ever landed on. You know, like sort of five minutes beforehand you know, million pounds in three months. So he got £276,000 for a speech to an American insurance brokerage in October. Uh, then he got uh, £278,000 from Centreview Partners, an investment firm in York. And then he went to Delhi, got 262000 from the Hindustan Times for a speech. It's so weird. I mean, are they literally thinking that Boris Johnson will turn up and say useful things about insurance? <laughs> I, I mean, are they think we might learn something this evening. But is it is it actually that also, nobody wants to go to an insurance times. conference? And so yeah. if you turn up to an insurance conference and they've got, I don't know, a chocolate fountain and Boris Johnson, you'd think, <laughs> oh, like... this is quite good. <laughs> a chocolate fountain. I was trying to think of the most... I don't know. I'm there. I'm there. I'm sold. I don't know, like a bucking bronco. But yeah, Marvin, you must have been... To... I don't know why you must have been... Have you been to some boring conferences? On, on a blacking bronco? No. Nope. <laughs> but you know, like these big like conferences, corporate, you know, gatherings, where nobody really wants to be there. They've all travelled on, you know, that's why they people I mean, companies pay the out. And people think reference I have to that is party conference, I fear. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and that has a few bucking broncos and usually a chocolate fountain and Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson, yeah. So the, in the in the league table that I tallied up this morning, so Boris Johnson gets about two hundred thousand, Theresa May a hundred thousand, Javid uh, Sajid Javid thirty thousand. Somebody spent more than seventeen thousand pounds flying John Healy to America to make a speech. Matt Hancock got ten grand, Jeremy Hunt five to ten, Michael Gove, Greg Clark, Esther McVeigh, all about three grand. Uh, John Whittingdale, £458.33. <laughs> Somebody paid £300 to Andrew Bridgen to make a speech. It's so weird, this whole world that, you know, we never yeah. see. But, I mean, this but, weird empty life Boris Johnson now has, and, you know, is his, you know, for a very long time, if he wants it, just flying from city to city to city to city, giving the same speech in anonymous conference rooms. And you just never, this is happening all the time. You never think about it. It fascinates me, that weird... Yeah, this completely bizarre. Because they're world. all they're all at it, you know. David Cameron, because they're not in the House of Commons anymore. We don't they don't have to declare it. But David Cameron, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, John yeah. Major, to varying degrees at varying points, would have been flying around the the world. I know, and I think if you're like you know, if you're a famous enough journalist, you can kind of get in on this a bit too. So this, this is my this is my ambition. I want to be paid. Um, <laughs> I want to go wait, to wait, I want to go James, to a bland conference hall and. So where James, are you putting yourself? If you do that, are you I will turn of, up to an insurance conference <laughs> yeah, to watch. I will come to the Council for Aluminium. You go there. <laughs> to be honest, do you get offered to, to do this? Some of this, like after dinner speech stuff, Maverick. I get off them all the time. I, can't, I basically often say no, just because it, I actually would put in slightly more effort. 
And I don't really want to go and do a turn for the council. For, no offence to the council for aluminium. They're never, ask, they're never asking you back. No. I know. I think you've just burnt that aluminium bridge. It's over. <laughs> can they go? Can my relationship with them go rusty? No, they can't. No, no famously it cannot. Famously, famously it cannot. Yeah. <laughs> it will persist. Um, uh, that's probably enough speeches. Right, let's move on. MPs have been told that primary school pupils are crying at school because they're so hungry. This is a really miserable story. Missing meals such as breakfast, of course, can affect children's learning and their long-term development. And Manvin, you've been, for today's stories, our Times podcast, uh, because one of the charities we're raising money for for the Times uh, Christmas Appeal is the charity Magic Breakfast. Uh, so, in fact, let's have a listen. This is when you went to a school in East London uh, to speak to some of the, the children who benefit. Let's take a listen. If we lose the support of Magic Breakfast or if we don't get the food through Magic Breakfast, there is only so far a school budget will stretch while remembering the mainstay is teaching and learning. But lots of the children wouldn't be able to learn effectively without the Breakfast Club and therefore that would affect their achievement in school when they're in a primary school, which means they go to secondary school with delayed achievement, which means they may never catch up, which then affects their whole life chances. So it's not just breakfast for a seven-year-old child, it's a breakfast for the rest of their life. And that's what's really, really important. That was uh, someone from Blue Gatefields Junior School in Shadwell in East London. Um, were you shocked by what you, you came across, uh, Manvi? Yeah, I actually was. Um, so I went along to this school and they have a, a magic breakfast club every morning. And I think for me, the most shocking thing was, you know, it's sort of the middle of Christmas. So, all, you know, the school hall was all sparkly. There's a tree up, there's lights. All these kids are just delightful. Uh, you know, they're running around being cheeky, saying some very funny things. And then suddenly one of them will stop and sort of just describe with, you know, alarming accuracy and in sort of really you know sweet way what it feels like to be hungry. You know, I had the little girl sort of saying, it's just, you know, so I, I sit in lessons and then my tummy rumbles and you're, you're, it, it hurts because and I feel tired because I'm hungry and I haven't eaten from the night before, you know, these are people who are coming to school hungry, may not have had dinner the night before. And if they did, it was might have been small because their parents are struggling. They're facing that classic sort of dilemma at the moment between heating and eating. Um, and if it wasn't for this breakfast club, which, you know, genuinely seems to be doing life saving work, you know, they, they come in, and they, they're given a piece of toast and they are so pleased, you know, they're completely delighted and it sets them up for the day. And I think just to just to actually hear you know, a seven-year-old, tell you what it feels like to, to, to be hungry a lot of the time, I found really disturbing. You know, I mean, we're in a first-world country. Um, I'm not quite sure how, how that's still happening. And James, this is why the, the Christmas appeal is so good, I suppose, in a way, partly because it's raising funds, but also raising awareness. Because uh, if you don't have children at school or you're not in that situation, but you might not be aware of how, how serious it is. Yeah, that's that's totally true. I had a similar <clears throat> experience to Manveen last year. I did, um, I went on a trip to the Lake District with a charity that took disadvantaged kids up mountains and stuff. And yeah, talking to them opened my eyes. And it is useful to be reminded that this stuff is going on because it's these kind of like lingering, you know, these kind of sort of long running issues. It doesn't always make a news story that everyone's going to click on. Mm. You know, it's in the background, but there's no particular like single event that you can report on. And it's a really good way to draw attention to those kind of, to those kind of problems. I mean, I will always remember um, the, the trip I did last year. It made, I mean, I feel Manveen feels the same, but it made a really big impression on me. Yeah. Well, it's a great, it's a great listen. You can listen to that on the uh, stories of our times podcast. And if you can, and I know, you know, lots of people are struggling, but if you can, 
and you are able to donate. £25 could feed a whole, a whole classroom for three school day, days, uh, which uh, Magic Breakfast will say is, uh, would boost reading and maths progress. £250 could feed a child for more than four school years, giving them a chance to succeed. £100 could give 357 children the fuel they need to learn. So if you can, if you are in a position to donate, please go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Christmas Appeal. We're raising money for Magic Breakfast, the campaign against living miserably, and Afghan aid. And like I said, you can listen to, to more of Manveen's report on, uh, on the Stories of Our Times podcast. But up next, we will find out how are farmers planning to vote in the election. And James has been on a rubbish stag do. Let's now take a look at a new poll which suggests the Conservatives are losing support Wait, on another new front. There's been lots of talk this week about the Red Wall. But what about the Blue Wall? What about the farmers? Phil Clark is from Farmers Weekly, who've been surveying uh, farmers to find out what they think. Hi, Phil. Hi there, good morning to you. Talk us through the headline results then. I know you've been doing this for a while now, so how does it compare to previous years? Uh, right, yeah, we do this uh, annual survey of farming sentiment covering a whole range of different topics. Uh, and one question we always ask is, how would you vote if there was an election tomorrow? And uh, traditionally, we've always found that about sort of 70 to 75% uh, of farmers would uh, vote Conservative. No huge surprise. Uh, last year, um, in our poll, we found that it suddenly slipped to 58%, uh, which certainly uh, raised uh, our attention. Uh, and then in the poll again this year, uh, it had gone further down to 42%. Wow. Uh, this is absolutely unprecedented territory for, for the farming audience. And this is a, how, tell me how this, this poll works, this sentiment survey. Is it people voting through Farmers Weekly? Do you go out and find the farmers? How does it work? Yeah, it's an online survey, but we put it out uh, to our database um, of you know, all our readers, uh, many thousands of farmers. Um, the number coming back uh, is about 600 uh, completed uh, responses to the survey. Uh, so it's a, you know, it's a fairly substantial number of replies yeah. that uh, year in, year out proves pretty reliable. And uh, no one could dispute that a shift from 72 to 42% is a, is a big old shift. What do you think's behind that? Why, in particular, might, like you said, farmers traditionally have been seen as uh, leaning uh, conservative? What, what's happened to shift that quite so dramatically? Um, to a certain extent, I think it's just in tune with the national trend. Yeah. Um, 12 months ago, um, it was very much related to uh, Partygate, Uh, Boris Johnson had made some fairly um, unwelcome comments about the state of the pig sector at the time, which uh, people were aghast about. Um, So that was 12 months ago. But then there's no doubt that um, that this time the sort of fallout following Boris Johnson's resignation, uh, the political chaos that um, uh, was around at the time. Uh, The survey we conducted was in uh, towards the end of October, beginning of November, so that was at the time that Liz Truss's uh, time in office was was coming to an end. So those sort of general things um, have all undermined uh, confidence in the Conservative Party's management of the economy. Um, and farmers have you know been uh, have felt that very much themselves. There are obviously some yeah. very specific issues as well related to farming, uh, but uh, the, you know the general it's, it's management general of the economy is is, yeah. is, is a big one. Um, we did ask another question in there, what farmers thought of the government's management of the economy. And a third uh, said that it uh, was highly risky and probably damaging. Uh, another third said it was ineffective. Uh, so, you know, two thirds were citing problems with the management of the economy. 
Phil, thanks for that. That's Phil Clark, news editor at Farmers Weekly, talking us through that survey. Now, uh, Manfred and James, somebody's written in front of me. Both of you are horribly urban, but what do you think <laughs> of this? Horribly so, urban. Do you think? Do you oh. consider yourself horribly urban and unable to have a view on the farmers, James? Uh, You've come yeah. dressed as a farmer today. <laughs> yeah, I have. Well, I dress. I dress specially for the show. I always try and theme my outfits around our discussion. <laughs> Um, I mean, it's proper sort of, you know, Ravens leaving the tower, isn't it? If, yeah, if, if I mean... Al- almost halving uh, support amongst farmers. This is what it seems to me. I mean, there's an extraordinary poll earlier this week that showed, you know, Labour might be on course, whether we believe it, you know, for a 314-seat yeah. majority. To me, it seems that's what it's a symptom of, just like the collapse of conservative support in the polls at the moment yeah rather than anything particularly specifically yeah, yeah. farmer based would be my would be my guess but it also feels a little bit Marvin, as uh, phil was saying that like um you know there's the general sense of it being a disaster over the last 12 months but each group also has their own specific oh, grievance so it's you know what they did about um uh, pig farmers uh, uh you know so and you could probably choose that whether it's you know two of nurses nurses across about the entire economy but also about their own particular you know issues and yeah. that sort of ends up being replicated right across society I mean, to be honest, I think for a lot of farmers, there's still the fallout from Brexit, too, which is causing all sorts of problems. But, you know, I remember yeah. going and doing sort of a bunch of pieces around some of those red wall um, areas. So I think Bishop Auckland, in, in fact, where you were suddenly starting to see people in, um, you know, in uh, who were sort of more urban in Bishop Auckland. You know, if you went around the town, there were people who were suddenly saying for the first time in their lives or for the first time in three generations, they were going to vote Tory. The moment you got out into the farms, actually the farmers were sort of saying, this is really alarming. The policy is going to kill um, our, our uh, you know, it's going to put us out of business. So the farmers were actually all turning against the Tories, even back then. That was about two, three, was that 2019? Yeah. Um, so I think I think that's been sort of coming for a while. And I think the general sort of anger about things like Partygate won't, won't have helped. Because it's not as if, what I think is interesting is it's not as if those the, the party is suddenly becoming, the Tory party is becoming more urban and less sort of appealing to the countryside. No, it's, it's, actually, not, it's not appealing. It's there not either. appealing to. It's not appealing to the cities either. So yeah. I think this is like a. It is also part of a general. Just feel a bit for, existential. For yeah, um, James. Let's talk uh, about your stag do. Yeah, let's. <laughs> what happened? So it wasn't. It wasn't actually my stag do. Um, I attended a stag do. To be yeah, to be clear, nobody, nobody's agreed to marry you. Nobody has yet agreed to marry me. Uh, I live yes, in yes. I live in fading hope. Eight seven trouble two. Start your message with the word <laughs> proposal if you want to get in touch. Uh, so what happened on your stag do that you thought was so rubbish? Well, um, I got trapped in a building site, um, and then I missed the last bus home. The last bus home from Oxford, uh, and I made it home at about five in the morning, which for me is incredibly late. And it was, I in hindsight, I have to admit, it was it was my fault. I, I'd never been in the stag do <laughs> before, and I was extremely excited about this one. Um, the first friend I've had who's ever got married, which is maybe a testament to, to, to my friends that oh, you're not none, ma- no you're one wants to marry any of us. You're not match fit when it comes to stag do. Are you, are you a fan of a hen do, Mavi? Uh, I, I prefer a stag do, actually. Yeah, I've yeah. been invited to one of those before. But um, I think it's probably standard practice to roll in at 5am after yeah. one, so you didn't do too badly, but... The building site you're going to have to explain at some point. Yeah, if you've got, if, if that's your first, you've got a lot of stag do's ahead of you, James. You need to get. Oh, yeah, in my last one. I didn't like being trapped in a building site at all. James Marriott and Manveen Rana there. You can listen to Manveen on the Stories of Our Times podcast, wherever you get your podcast from. You can read James in The Times. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. After our conversation, several people got in touch offering to get married to James Marriott, but uh, it turns out James is only looking to marry into money. So if you've got money and you'd like to marry James Marriott, do get in touch in the usual ways. Up next is the focus group. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yes, every month here on Times Radio, we convene a focus group of voters to assess how the government's getting on and to see what matters to people outside the Westminster bubble. As ever, it was chaired by James Johnson from JL Partners, former number 10 pollster, and joins me now. Hi, James. Hello. Uh, So, (laughs) let's do the legal disclaimer first of all. What is a focus group and how is it different from a poll? Absolutely. So, a poll is intended to be representative. It's intended to tell us what the public think as a whole. Focus groups are not intended to do that. They're much smaller groups of people, six to eight people, uh, and they're there to dig under the details of a poll, to to hear how voters speak. Not there to say this is what these voters definitively think, but there to give a sense of how they're talking and the kind of way they're approaching issues. Um, We also speak to specific audiences, and this month we spoke to our usual group, swing voters, those who uh, voted Labour or Conservative in 2019, who are now undecided. And we've also thrown in a couple of new uh, respondents, those who are voting, who voted Conservative in 2019, but are now saying they vote Labour, as that is quite a sizable group in the polls now. So we've got a couple of those in there as well. And that's because the polls at least suggest a big shift directly from Conservative to Labour. And so they wouldn't normally be caught in our undecided group. Although actually the don't knows are still a big chunk of the, if you people actually dig into the, the, the polls, don't knows still make up a sizable chunk, don't they? Yeah, I don't know. Those are around one in five of uh, people who um, voted Conservative in 2019. Uh, those directly switching are anywhere between sort of 10 to 15 percent. So, yep, don't know still matter more, but uh, obviously those direct switches are important too. And we spoke to voters this time in Reading West, Great Grimsby and rest, West Bromwich East. So uh, all seats that are going to be uh, very crucial to, uh, to to the next election electoral map. OK, let's dive in then. Do get in touch. 8722, start messing with the word times if you want to tell me how general how the general public are all stupid, uh, which is someone will always do that. So let's just get that out of the way. Right, let's dive straight in then. This is a great reminder. All political parties do this. Number 10 do this. Political parties do this uh, to try and get under the skin of what voters uh, really think that you can't get just in a headline poll. Uh, let's start uh, as we usually do. James asked them how they feel the, co- the government are doing generally. They're struggling, even though uh, Boris is gone and we've got Rishi Shunak. I don't particularly feel they're doing a, a brilliant job to help the working class people, even the middle class people. It, it all seems to be about the, the upper class people getting richer. I appreciate it's a difficult job. However, I just think at the moment we're rather rudderless. We don't seem to know what direction, particularly we want to take the country in. I'm frustrated with it. It seems like they don't really know what they're doing. They don't really know what's going on. They don't really know where they're heading, which also makes it seem like they're quite untrustworthy. There's definitely like a lack of leadership and there has been for quite a while. Um, And I think because of that, that that ends with like a lack of trust. I think I I I do think it's a really difficult job. It's not an easy one, but I just don't think that we've got a leader that's got much gravitas. You know, it's early days for Rishi, so... 
obviously we haven't seen him do an awful lot as yet. He's got a lot of things to put right because the last two prime ministers really didn't help us. A lot of people in this country have lost all confidence, really, and he's got a lot to prove. He's He's got to make some differences. He's got to get us out of this hole because where we are right now, we really shouldn't be in 2022, as far as I'm concerned. In a hole, struggling, rudderless, directionless, don't know what they're doing, untrustworthy and a lack of leadership. There's a theme there, James. Yeah, rudderless really sums it up, I think. People feel that there's not currently that grip uh, on, on, on the government which is needed in what light of the challenges that they see, whether it's immigration, whether it's rising cost of living, whether it's pressures on the NHS, as you heard there. So... There is a little bit of that sense that we've heard all the way back since twenty since twenty nine since twenty twenty when we started doing these focus groups. People saying, "Well, they have got a difficult job. They have got a difficult job." But there's absolutely no doubt that uh, that feeling of concern about their grip on that job uh, is much more critical than it has been uh, at the start of uh, this parliamentary term. And how much of this that that concern do you think is a reflection of? 12 years of chaos and rudderlessness. I mean, in the sense that we we literally didn't have a permanent prime minister for big chunks of the year. And how much of it is specific to Rishi Sunak, do you think? I think most of it stems from the Liz Trust premiership. Uh, that's in the polls where we saw the biggest shift. And it's also where we've sort of, as a result, seen our focus groups also sort of change their emphasis. And when we dig into why that is, people are basically... That moment with the mini-budget and Liz Truss's premiership led them to losing faith in the sort of competence of the government as a whole. And it's interesting because you wouldn't really hear 12 years of Tory government as a line in a focus group for most of the parliamentary term. And after that, it started to it started to matter. It started to come to the front. Uh, it always reminds me of uh, another uh, a polling expert, uh, Lord Hayward. He always says things like this matter when they matter. Um, when voters get turn against a party then all of their previous problems become problems yeah, for them yeah. when they weren't salient before. It's interesting that you've increasingly seen Labour using that 12 years line and you wonder whether that's coming up in their focus groups they're repeating back, which is how it gets used so much. Uh, let, let's uh, focus in particular then on Rishi Sunak. You asked him to sum up Rishi Sunak in a sentence. Out of touch. He's led quite a privileged life and, and that kind of seems to come through. It doesn't mean because he's got a lot of money he can't do a decent job. It, what should he have to be poor to be a, a good prime minister, basically? I think he's still working. He's still working hard. He's got a horrible job on his hands. And if he's that rich, he doesn't need to do it. He might as well just go and relax on a beach somewhere. Yeah. So he's feel a little bit sorry for him. It's going to be hard for him to please everyone. Young, inexperienced, and I hope he can do it. Seems like a nice guy. But, yeah, he, he he's very young and hasn't done this sort of thing before. I feel like he actually did quite well during covid you know, I don't think he's a bad person. I don't think he's got that lack of trust as to what happened with Boris and everybody else. So a, a slightly more positive there, uh, James. Starts off all of it, you know, the, clearly he's got a lot of money, he's got massive cut through. But people, a tiny whiff of benefit of the doubt, just because he's well off doesn't necessarily mean he can't do a good job, but there's just a bit unsure at the moment. Yeah, look, I think we're seeing what's playing out in the polls here, that we've got you know, the Conservative Party's brand is, deep underwater but actually Rishi Sunak's numbers as a prime minister looking back in, in, in history are actually pretty relatively strong and against Starmer there's only a small gap so yes there are those concerns about his about his background there are those concerns about uh, whether he's got the grip uh, and the plan that they want to see 
Um, but they do feel that actually let's judge him on his actions rather than on his background. And there's that interesting thing, and we got it last time in our focus group, Matt, and we've got it in other focus groups that we've been doing as well, where always when the discussion of the background is is on, one person says, well, hang on a second, maybe that means he's in it for the right reasons. Maybe that means, you know, he's not had to go into politics to make money because the public always think that the the reason MPs are are in there is to make a load of cash. Now, actually, MPs don't make that much money, but that is the public perception of it. And they feel that, therefore, maybe Rishi Sunak is doing this for the right reasons if he's not in it to earn money. And that's a real sort of chink of light for the Conservatives. OK, so let's really boil it down. This is what the panel of uh, of uh, swing voters had to say. Uh, summing up Rishi Sunak in a single word. Untrustworthy, I'd say. Big expectations. Brave. Potential. Hope. Potential was going to be mine, actually. See, potential, they'd probably take that. Uh, right, let's move on then. Uh, <laughs> this is extraordinary. So Jeremy Hunt clearly is now the Chancellor of the Exchequer. He's been on the front bench on and off for, what, 15 years? He was on the front bench in opposition uh, in government for most of the last 12 years. This is what the voters had to say about the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt. I don't know anything about him. Sorry, yeah, I, I'm I'm a bit the same. I don't really know much about him. Seems like a very nice guy, very personable, but I think he's quite wordy. I think he talks the talk. Not entirely sure whether he sort of delivers yeah, I don't know much about him, to be honest. Never heard his name before, to be honest. Really don't like him. He comes across as smarmy. And Jeremy Hunt wanted to have draconian lockdowns. He wanted to go to more the China way of locking people down, which I was totally against. I don't. I just don't think the guy's the right the right man for the job. Interesting. Not a lot of cut through for a man who's been on frontline politics for such a long time, apart from on lockdown, and that's not doing many favours, Joe. Yeah, quite. Look, this is a reminder that um, the public are not plugged into politics as as much as we are, and, <laughs> and as much as Twitter is. And uh, you know, there's a few negative things in there for Jeremy Hunt, but the main thing is people not really knowing uh, who he is. And I think when you're on Chancellor, he's just delivered some of the tough news he has. Maybe maybe that's not too much of a loss. Nobody noticing it was him that did it is probably no uh, no bad thing. Uh, well, normally um, uh, we get that response. Sorry, I don't know who he is uh, when we're talking about Keir Starmer. Although that appeared to have shifted. The last few couple of months when we've been doing the uh, the focus group, clearly he's mild, you know doing very well in the polls, twenty points ahead Labour over the Conservatives. So what did this group have to say about Keir Starmer? Doesn't ring a bell again. Sorry. He's probably going to stand a good fight against uh, Rishi. He seems okay. I actually thought in the beginning he was quite genuine, but as time goes on and you see them in Parliament arguing, it, it seems to be more about him scoring points and actually getting out there and doing something about problems. So I still quite like him, actually. A lot of people don't seem to. He does appear to be saying things that are resonating with the general public. He seems to have come across better since the Tory infighting. Could he carry it through as a Prime Minister? If I'm honest, I'm unsure. This is more kind of based around the COVID times. I just felt like, as opposed to saying what he believed in, it was more that he was like constantly putting them down. I just don't really like that. I don't think that's a sign of a leader. I think you need to be very clear on what it is that you stand for, as I felt like he just stood for everything that they didn't. A lot of what he says, I feel like it it's positive. And half of me would like to give him the opportunity to see if he would do what he says he's going to do. 
but I don't know if it's on talk or not. I don't think he could be any worse than uh, than Boris. So you know, it's extraordinary, James. If you'd played that, I mean, hadn't said who it was, you wouldn't think this is someone who was twenty five points ahead in the polls. Yeah, I think that I think that's fair. Look, there's a there's there's two things sort of tussling in voters' minds at the moment when it comes to Keir Starmer. One is this very strong sense that they want to see change, and they feel that the problems this year and the incompetence of the government has led them to think, you know, we, we may as well give them a chance. So there's that force for change on the one hand. But on the other hand, there are still these deep hesitations about him, about whether he's strong enough, about whether he's got what it takes to be prime minister, about whether he has genuine views and principles rather than just scoring political points, as you heard the lady say there. So at the moment, the sort of give him a, give him a chance change message is, 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 is just about sort of uh, pipping the other one to the post. But that could change, especially in the in the context of an election. So, yeah, look, I think that's absolutely right. I think this does show that there is that softness to uh, the Labour lead, especially when it's framed in terms of Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer. In fact, let's move on to uh, when you asked them who they prefer, Rishi Sunak or uh, Keir Starmer, sort of tr- a straight choice. We'll do voting attention in a second, but this is the straight choice between uh, uh, Sunak and Starmer. I would reluctantly say Keir Starmer just because I feel like we need a change, but I'm I'm very sceptical of Keir Starmer anyway. Exactly the same Keir Starmer and change. Reluctantly, I would have to say Rishi at the moment. I think too much change at the moment is just going to unsettle things right now. I think I'd say Keir because I think we do need to shake things up. I'd say Rishi because potentially as he's in, we haven't really had nothing too, too bad. We should let it be. Yeah, I think Rishi, because I think he's not been in long enough to prove himself. And then if he doesn't do what he's promised, then you could always change your mind later on. Really interesting that, James. It just goes to show that that, that Labour vote could could be incredibly soft. And that actually, the uh, it's, it feels anyway to me like this, this big Labour lead in the polls is an anti-Tory shift and not a pro-Labour one in a way that clearly what we saw in maybe you know the mid-90s. Uh, that was a, a you know a big pro Labour, pro New Labour, pro Tony Blair move. Yeah, I think that's right, and uh, it, it it also makes it clear that Rishi Sunak provides the tiniest modicum of a reset moment or potential for the Conservatives because they do associate him with freshness, youth, maybe you know some potential. Look, the key thing that was that was that that, that is common to both how they talk about Labour and the Conservatives at the moment, and what they're looking for is they're looking for change, and at the moment that's benefiting Labour. But they're also quite willing to see that change from the Conservatives because they view things through the prism of the leader. And if Rishi Sunak can capitalise on that sense of freshness, that sense of potential, then maybe he can be the change candidate for them as well. It's a very steep hill at the moment. It is certainly advantage Labour. You can see that in the polls. You can see that in how they talk about change in this group. But change is the issue for 2024. There's no doubt about that. Uh, let's move on then and dig into some of the uh, the key issues facing the country right now. Uh, okay, we've got nurses out on strike. We've had uh, railways this week, postal workers too. Uh, and you asked them who they felt is to blame for the industrial action. I would say the government personally. Yes, they're, they're the ones that are holding back. I would blame the unions itself. If something happened, I think I would look at blaming them for stirring up the potential of striking but then also i think you would still have to proportion blame as well to people that maybe have voted for the strike as well 
I think a lot of it falls down to the employers as well, because for some of these multi-million pound companies, there is actually something they can do without having to have the government raise minimum wages and things like that. I think it is down to the people who employ them to, to work with the government and not not have the strikes work with the government and find a solution for me it all just goes back to the cost of living if people felt that they could afford to live then i don't think they would feel that they're kind of pushed into this hole where they feel that that is the only option for them all parties are to blame really Uh, they're all you know got a piece of the pie and they're all responsible they all need to talk to each other and sort it out for the employees so what james nuanced conflicted uh fair-minded ballot all the things that you wouldn't get from twitter and the sort of the political conversation where it's all the government's fault or it's all the union's fault all the employer's fault um it's quite a mixed bag there isn't it yeah and look sums up again what we know from the polls on this that people are, are pretty divided down the middle um there is blame on the government there is also blame on the unions uh i would say that on the basis of that group um if i was the government listening to this i would be slightly happier than i would be if i were the unions listening to this and the reason for that is is that there's not a clear sense that it is the government's fault the blame is diffuse um employers unions government and the way that people are talking about it and the way that when the conversation runs on they are more nervous, I think, about the idea of the unions being in control. And they talk about not the nurses necessarily being behind this, but the unions, the suits, the higher ups, as one person said, who might be uh, who might be determining uh, these strikes. And there was also a big concern about this idea of a slippery slope. If the government get in, is it ever going to stop? So I would say it's slight advantage government on the basis of this focus group in terms of how people spoke uh, about these issues. There's clearly uh, with this swing voter group not necessarily the country across the whole but there's clearly a bit of a sense in our group this time that the unions uh, are, are perhaps a slightly bigger problem than the government uh so uh, that's uh, the strikes what about um immigration uh, you asked them about uh the you know, this was on we should say this was on tuesday nights so was before uh what we saw happen in the channel yesterday with those uh, those people that died but you asked about immigration lots of talk actually about the country being too full and not having the infrastructure uh, for more people but you asked them who they would trust to deal with the, the issue of immigration i don't think conservative have made a very good job of it so i'm going to go labor but it's an unknown quantity really at the moment yeah i would say labor because i just think give them a chance to do something different <laughs> conservative i would say Tories. i'd go conservative as well so I mean, that's, that probably goes go, still goes a little the grain of uh, what you would normally expect the Conservatives to be doing well on immigration. Yeah, look, this is, again, that sense of it shows you the power of, you know, give them a chance, take the change. Yeah, if, yeah. if the Labour can persevere with that, that's a very powerful place to be. Uh, and just fi- finally in this uh, section, you asked them just outright, if there was an election being held today, who would they vote for? I think I would have to go with Conservative. Only because I've always voted them and I'd be a bit scared of change at the moment. But I think, give me another vote next year, it might change to Labour. Yeah, I'd say Labour purely for change, but still be very dubious, to be honest. I think I would, at this point, want to give Labour a chance. I would vote for another party. I just think that Tories have been in for 10 years. And at the minute, I don't think we think there's a lack of confidence. I am really undecided. However, if you had to push me on it, I would have to say Tory. I would vote Tory because I've just lost quite a lot of trust in in what I'm being told. And I feel like we do need a bit of a, a change. 
Well, that last comment will probably uh, raise some eyebrows, James. But just a reminder there that the, 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 that conflict between change and stability, is it a time for change? Maybe not now, but maybe when an election comes. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And look, you, you get it all summed up there. And actually, as we've said before, the number of votes either way doesn't really matter in a focus group this small. But the reasons people give is the interesting thing. And there is that sense there of, yes, attraction to Labour, but dubious. That's the word that stood out for me. Yeah, you know, yeah, people yeah. are not quite convinced. And, you know, immigration, the economy, if the Conservatives can wrestle those things back into their fold, then maybe things might start to look a little bit different. OK, so we'll find out what they think the party leaders are going to be doing this uh, Christmas. Let's go through the final the final exchanges then from the, uh, the panel. Uh, James asked them to describe Rishi Sunak's perfect Christmas. Oh, he probably he probably rents a fantastic house in the country and has all his, all his family there, have people to do his chefing for him and uh, his children are probably thoroughly spoilt, but I should imagine it's a fantastic Christmas. No one talking about politics, I reckon. Just having a day off, enjoying time with his, with his loved ones. Has his time with his family, enjoys very expensive wine and cheese and things like that and no different from every other Christmas because he's, he was he had a lot of money last Christmas and the Christmas before and the Christmas before. So just because he's prime minister, she's not going to have extra champagne and stuff. But I think it won't be as he won't be as happy as the other Christmases because he's still got a lot on his plate. Yeah, we all have a lot on our plate at Christmas. Uh, what about uh, what they thought of Keir Starmer's Christmas? I think Keir Starmer's perfect Christmas would be spent at number ten, having a, having a sherry round the tree at number ten. Um, think that he's going to win the next election. I think a family Christmas being in number ten with sherry, champagne, what, whatever it happens to be. James, what should we read into that? Well, it's quite wholesome responses, really. <laughs> They're all quite nice. It turns out the public's quite forgiving. I know, I know. I mean, when we when we asked that for Boris Johnson last year, I believe it was a lot more uh, saucy responses. I think you know, parties and and goodness knows what else. But uh, no, I think this shows what you know the new new sort of political world we're in. You know, they don't see Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer as particularly loud, abrasive personalities yeah, yeah. who are particularly controversial. Um, uh, but nor do they sort of view them as hate figures. Obviously, a little bit of feed through, uh, feed through into Rishi Sunak's background there. But uh, yes, uh, sounds like a nice Christmas all round. Uh, finally then uh, a more direct message they wish them all a lovely Christmas but if they could bend the ear of the two party leaders uh, this is what our focus group panellists had to say that they would want to tell Rishi Sunak put his the most important things first get get a list and get them all dealt with Uh, consistency um, help the farmers please help the people of this country as soon as possible I'd say create a vision believe in it and help us all the cost of living have a plan and stick to it. To be clear of what you're doing, how you're doing it and why. And this was their message to Keir Starmer. To see what Conservatives are doing wrong and make sure that if he gets in, he does it right. Listen to the people and what, what people want because no government at the moment seems to be doing that. Have a good manifesto in place for the people and stick to it. My actions speak louder than words. Tell me your plans for Britain and how are you going to deal with things? Well, plenty there to choose through, James. Uh, Rishi Sunak, you know, basically do the right thing. And, that's, and they really want to start seeing some flesh on the bones from Keir Starmer. Yeah, look, plan, consistency, clear. They were the key things that came through for me, though. And earlier in the group, someone summed it up quite well, I thought. They said, you know, um, do something on one or two things, 
you know, rather than do nothing on everything. And that's the sense they want to get. They want to get a sense of prioritising and plan. So I'd expect to see quite a lot of that language from both parties in the new year based on uh, the focus groups, if they're listening to ones anything like ours. Uh, and James, overall, just looking back over the last 12 months uh, and all the focus groups we've done, I mean, clearly we've got through a lot of prime ministers. Uh, Keir Starmer is now the sort of the veteran of of all of this. What are the big shifts that you've seen this year and what do you think we should be keeping an eye on in, in uh, 2023? Well, I think the big one really is that the benefit of the doubt is no longer there for the government. And a bit of that was lost with Partygate um, and then it was sort of definitively lost with the Liz Trust mini budget. And that's the really worrying thing for the government now because it means that they have less sort of less of a reputational shield to rely on. Um, Keir Starmer, certainly more positivity there. That desire for change certainly coming through a lot more. But there are also things that are very constant, that sort of real concern um, about whether about Keir Starmer, about whether um, he's sort of got what it takes. Uh, there's a bit more positivity about Rishi Sunak perhaps than we've had for other prime ministers throughout the year. Um, and uh, there still remain those big concerns about the economy and immigration. And as I, was, as I mentioned earlier, you know, it does still seem to play for. Um, I know that might seem a bit crazy thing to say when, you know, the, the Labour are 20 points ahead. But I think what we get from this focus group and what we get from other focus groups we do is that this is not a slam dunk for Keir Starmer just yet. It's definitely advantaged Keir Starmer. But there are still big issues. And if the Conservatives can claw immigration, claw the economy back into their area and they're able to harness some of those strengths we hear voters talking about in regards to Rishi Sunak, then they might just be able to uh, 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 bring Starmer's ratings down. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 